Well, according to Greek mythology, all evil is the fault of one woman. Not Eve, but a young lady by the name of Pandora. When the gods created Pandora, um, she was very special to them, and so they wanted to bestow upon her um, some lavish gifts at her birth. And one of them was an expertly handcrafted treasure chest, which she was told she may never open. Well, I wonder how that would go if you told your kids that. Um, Here's a present, you just can't see what's inside. Well, what was inside was all the evils of the world. And Pandora resisted the temptation as long as she possibly could, but eventually her curiosity got the best of her, and she pried open her box, and all the evils that we now know escaped from Pandora's box. That's where slander comes from, and gossip, and murder, and gluttony, and sloth, and greed, jealousy, hate. They were now forever free. But she managed to snap the box closed, capturing only one last evil. The only evil that was not allowed to escape, and now that she knew it was in there, she would never open the box again, and it has been safe for all eternity, according to the Greeks. And can you remember what that evil was? Well, it was hope. And you may think, well, hope isn't an evil. Well, you've been duped, apparently. Hope is the most evil of evils. What the Greeks believed is that it was the most pernicious of all wickedness because it prevented people from accepting their fate. It caused people to long for something better. It caused people to live for something in the future rather than something in the present, which the Greeks considered to be an evil. Existential philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche suggested that in difficulty... Hope may be worse than hopelessness. At least if you were hopeless, you would deal with the situation at hand, but hope continually makes you deny where you are because of the possibility of something in the future. This came from a study that they did that um, prisoners who were sentenced to life imprisonment without possibility of parole tended to adjust better to their situation and be better inmates than those that constantly hoped that one day they would be released. Nietzsche wrote, In truth, it is the most evil of evils because it prolongs man's torment. Well, that is the exact opposite of what the Bible says. In other words, Nietzsche was saying that if you give up hope for a better situation and accept your current situation, you become satisfied with it. You find your happiness here and not in an afterlife or something in the future. But does God want us to be satisfied with this life? Does he want us to live as if there's nothing coming? That this is as good as it's going to get? This life where his will is not done, where sin is rampant, where suffering is part of everyday experience, does he want you to live your best life now? The answer is found in 1 Peter chapter 1. So turn your Bibles to the letter of Peter, the first letter of Peter, chapter 1. You'll remember that Peter is writing to a group of Christians that has been scattered from their home because of persecution. They have found themselves in various parts of Asia Minor, and so this is a letter that he has written that's being passed around places like uh, Bithynia and Cappadocia, Asia, Pontius, Galatia. And as it's going around, he is encouraging these Christians to not lose faith. 
They have not done anything wrong. They are not suffering because they are being judged by God. They are suffering because this is part of God's plan to spread the gospel. And now that they are away from their home and they are suffering, Peter is writing to encourage them with the main theme of his epistle, which is to keep calm and carry on. Don't fear. Don't despair. Don't flounder in hopelessness. Know that God is in control of all things. And especially Peter has been telling them that they're saved, that their salvation is secure in this life and for eternity, and that there's nothing that happens to them now that's going to rob them of that. And because of that, they can have this tremendous hope. And so that's what we've been looking at as we've been going through the epistle verse by verse. Last time we were here, we saw that New Testament revelation is something that not even the Old Testament prophets knew about. And so in that way, we are of the most privileged people in history because we live on this side of the revelation of Jesus Christ, his death on our behalf, his conquering the grave and resurrection, and all of the prophecies that come after that in the epistles and in John's apocalypse. Well, we have those at our fingertips and not even the prophets had that. And that they wrote prophecies in the Old Testament that they themselves did not fully understand because they were writing them for our benefit. And we saw, just like with the JFK um, files that are uh, going to be opened at different stages in history, that this progressing revelation, as we've learned more and more, is something that not even the angels know how it's all going to end. And that they are concerned to see what happens in the future. So let me just remind us of that by reading from verse 10, and we'll get into verse 13 this morning. 1 Peter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's as far as we'll get this morning. We're going to zoom in there on verse 13 because uh, Peter has been serving these full plates of meaty doctrine right from the, the get-go. He opens the door, and in his greeting, he stuffs foreknowledge and election in your mouth to chew on, right? No small talk. And, uh, and then he's been talking about all of these great doctrines of salvation and security of your salvation and all of these things. And then he spoke about the wonders and the mystery of the revelation of the gospel that we have. And now, finally, he's going to turn the corner. He's going to slow down a little bit. He's going to get a bit more practical with us. And we know that because he uses the word, therefore. Remember, I've taught you, you always want to ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? We're going to see two instructions on hope that help you live with your eyes fixed on Jesus so that you'll be able to bear up under the, the moral and spiritual chaos that you may feel at times in this world. Two instructions on hope that help you live with your eyes fixed on Jesus. Firstly, the directive, you must hope. And then the directions, how to hope. 
So firstly, let's look at the directive, the instruction, you must hope. Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, it's the last half of this verse that drives all those points. This part that set your hope on the grace that will come to you. So it's all about hope. The command is that you hope. That is the directive from Peter. Because of these things about your salvation and revelation and this unfolding plan of redemption, because of those things, therefore, hope in the future. The things that not even the angels know are going to happen. And we don't know, but we know that we can have hope about the future. So what is the definition? Well, what type of hope is he talking about? The problem is that the way we use the word hope in English in our vernacular is different from the way the Greeks used the word hope. That's why the Greeks thought that hope was such an evil, because it was a knowledge of something that was going to happen in the future that caused you to live your life differently. So we use the word hope basically more like, I, I wish something would happen, right? I hope this happens. I hope it doesn't rain on my birthday party. I don't have a plan B. So the, you don't know if it is or isn't. You just kind of have this, this desire, this wish. You know, I hope that Auburn will beat Alabama someday. You, know? you don't know if that's going to happen, but you have a desire in you. You, ha you have a wish. But that's not the way this word is used in Greek and in the Greek culture. Hope was something that you knew certainly would happen, and so you were looking forward to that happening. And so, of course, in this context, when he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, he's not saying, well, you, you wish that you're going to be saved. You know that you're going to be saved. How do you know? Well, just go read my previous 12 verses. That's how you know. I'm telling you that your salvation in Jesus Christ is secure if you are one of his. And so this is not an evangelistic passage. He's not writing to unbelievers, convincing them of the gospel, calling them to repentance. He's writing to believers who can be sure that they have this salvation. So hope in Scripture is something definite. Hope is what gets you up in the morning to go through something difficult because you know that there's something better at the end. And everyone's goal in life, of course, is joy how God has designed us. He created us to desire joy. He also created us with a God-shaped hole, as St. Augustine said, that can only be filled by God. And that's why the whole book of Ecclesiastes was written to show us all the different places we're trying to find our joy, where we fall short because God wants us to find our joy in Him. That's why He cursed marriage. That's why He cursed the earth after they sinned, because He didn't want people to be complacent and find their joy in their relationships or in their careers. That's why your job is hard. That's why your spouse isn't perfect, even though you are, right? God wants you to wait for him and to long for him and to place your hope in him. The problem is that what gets you up in the morning sometimes isn't what it ought to be. And so perhaps if you want joy and you think it's going to come from security in life or uh, enjoyment of lifestyle, then your work will be what gets you up in the morning. I can't wait to get to work because it gets me the money to buy the lifestyle that I want and the security that I want in the future, and that's where my joy will come from. That's a fool's errand. Your joy will not come from that security, nor from your lifestyle. Are all the rich people you know in your life the happiest people? 
What about if your joy comes from relationships? Well, because of that, if I want a good relationship, then I need to find the right person to marry. Um, and so I need to uh, wake up early and go to gym so that I look good because my looks will lead to a relationship which will uh, lead to happiness. Another fool's errand. Are all the runway models in the world the happiest people you've met? Well, Peter says it this way, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's a future passive tense. That's something that's coming. That's in the future. It's not here. Now, we've spoken about this, that salvation throughout the New Testament is spoken of as something that is already and not yet. You have been justified by Christ. You have been declared righteous at the moment of placing your faith in him. All of your sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven because he paid for them on Calvary. So yes, you are already saved. And Peter's been talking about that. That's secure. But we also know that our salvation is the sanctification part of it, the becoming more like Christ, the becoming holy part of it, is progressive. You start off immature, and you mature over time as a believer, hopefully, if you're following the instructions of Scripture. And so there is this grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, on that great day when he returns to raise the living, well, rapture the living, raise the dead, judge the living and the dead. And this word grace, as you ought to know, is a free gift of God. Like in Ephesians 2.10, by grace you have been saved. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not as a result of works that no one should boast. So this is the grace, the free gift that's coming to you in the future, and it'll be brought to you by Jesus. It's not something that you can earn. It's not something that you can accomplish. It's not something that you need to go and get. And that is the vast distinction between the Christianity of the Bible and every other religion. Every religion tells you what you need to do to be saved. The Bible tells you what has been done that saved you. And that there's nothing that you can do. And that your entire life of holiness is lived in response. Not to accomplish something, but out of gratitude for something that's been accomplished. And so it's a free gift of God. The salvation mentioned earlier in these other verses, like in verse 4. Uh, there he calls it an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And we unpacked all of those terms, right? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you were born a sinner, and as soon as you were able, you started sinning, and you never stopped, and that there is nothing in you that enables you to find Christ and respond rightly to him, and therefore, in his grace and his sovereignty and power and mercy and love, he initiates that salvation in you, and he stirs up in you a desire for forgiveness and repentance, and he grants you the knowledge that comes from Scripture. And He grants you the faith in that knowledge. And He grants you the repentance, the leaving your sin and embracing Him. And He grants you the Holy Spirit which regenerates your heart, the Holy Spirit that was working in you to cause you to get to this point. And then your whole life is lived by the power of the Spirit to please Him. That's the gospel. And so Peter says, make that what gets you up in the morning. Make that your hope because that is the only thing in your life that is 100% sure. 
And what's the proof? There is no proof. That's why it's through faith that you are saved. You need to believe in that coming salvation based on what Jesus did. You need to believe in his life of perfection and righteousness, his death on your behalf as a substitute on the cross, and his resurrection, bodily, physical resurrection, conquering the grave. And if you believe that, that's the proof. You don't need history or CSI, forensic science, to prove it to you, as many have. You just need that God said it. And that becomes more sure to you than anything else that you could possibly be sure of. That is the life of faith. And so Peter says that if you know that about your salvation and you're putting your faith in that salvation, that's where you will get your joy. That's what gets you up in the morning. That joy is coming. And so place your hope there. Paul said it this way in Colossians 3 verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, if you've been raised with Christ, so if you are a Christian, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Paul's agreeing with Peter. I know they've had their clashes, we've seen that, but they agree on this. Set your mind, if you're in Christ, if you're saved and you know that you're saved, you can set your minds on the things in heaven, not on earth. Because that's where Jesus is. So just a little footnote, Jesus is not sitting on a little throne in your heart. I know we invite Jesus to come into our heart when we're four years old. But he didn't. He's waiting. He's in heaven. He's an actual person in a bodily form, in a place in the universe Seated at the right hand of the Father. That's his position. But he will come again geographically, physically to earth to raise the dead and to judge them. But place your mind on Christ. Pry your fingers off your career or your money or your health or your relationships or whatever it is that you think will bring you that joy. Wherever you're placing your hope, pry your fingers off of that and cling to Christ. Of course, those things are not unimportant. Uh, having a job, having a family, uh, taking care of your health, these aren't bad things as long as they don't replace Christ and become idols. An idol is anything in your life that you're willing to sin in order to get or keep. Matthew 6, 32, Jesus says, the Gentiles seek after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. This is after speaking about, don't worry about what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink. The Gentiles, the unbelievers, worry about those things. They seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's your priority. And all these things will be added to you. Yes, they're important, but you don't seek them. You seek him. You see him, and he gives you those gifts. Matthew 5, 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. If you put your hope in possessions, your garden furniture is going to rust. Your bank account is going to be chewed up by inflation and failed investments. Your clothes are going to be eaten by moths. 
And if there's anything left, the burglars will steal them or the riots or the fires or the zombie apocalypse or whatever's coming. It's not safe. Nothing you have is safe. There's no zombie apocalypse, by the way, kids. It was just a joke. If you put your hope in, the, in these things, they can be taken from you. But if you put your hope in heaven, it's safe, as Peter's been telling us over and over. So set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the directive. Keep calm. And in order to keep calm, you need hope. So that's the directive, but how? Uh, obviously, how, how do I do this? Okay, I'm, I'm on board, preacher. Tell me what to do. Okay, that's step two, directions. That's the directive. You must hope. The directions are how to hope in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope. So the command set your hope was second, but here's the, the directions and how to do that. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So I've, t I've told you before about, uh, you know, what it's like when you go hiking and you're looking down at your feet because there's a tricky place. And my wife and I were hiking in the Alps once, and it's so steep and so rocky that you're just looking down all the time. And you may as well just be hiking, you know, in Alabama at that point because you're just looking down at the dirt, and all dirt looks the same. But every once in a while, you stop and you remind yourself to look up. And you're in the Alps, and it's breathtaking. Well, that's your life, isn't it? You come to church. Church is the moment of the week that you've carved out to just kind of stand there and gaze at the glory of Jesus. You get to sing about Jesus. You get to fellowship with other people that know and believe in Jesus. You get to hear from his word and you get kind of like pumped up and refreshed. And then you head out the door, you get in your car, and as you pull into traffic, you get cut off. And there's, why aren't they, why are there potholes here? I mean, don't we live in America? There shouldn't be potholes. And these are just things I think. Um, and, and I've got to do this when I get home, and then this is happening. And, uh, and then you get to work, and, and the whole week you're just looking down, and you're just trying to navigate life. And your mind is set on the things of earth. And you can't wait to at least come to Wednesday. I don't know, you people who don't come to Wednesday, I don't know how you do it. Sunday to Sunday, and then you skip a Sunday? Good luck with that. It's, it's everything in me just to go from, from one opportunity to stare at Christ to the next, and the rest of the time we're so focused on, on earthly things. But what Peter's saying is you need to develop this habit of prying your eyes off the ground and looking up at the Alps of Christ daily. Constantly, the more you can do it, the more you will be inspired by his loveliness and his power and his sovereignty and his love for you and his mercy for all the things you do wrong every day. And it'll help you, it'll bring joy. So, this is what you need to do you need to do these two things found in verse 13. And incidentally, just coincidentally, they happen to be the same two things you need for a driver's license. Be prepared and be sober. <laughs> so firstly, be prepared. Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Now, th this translation and uh, the New American Standard has it the same. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. But the Old King James has the, the literal um, translation of the Greek, which is gird up your loins for action. 
Now, of course, there's a good reason why the SV went was preparing your minds. It means the same thing, and what is a loin anyway, right? Why is Peter talking about my inner thighs? Um, well, any lady here will tell you that when you go and do gardening, um, you don't do it in a, an ankle-length skirt. If you, if you go to the gym, you don't wear an ankle-length skirt, right? You, you put in something that you can move in. Well, in those days, not only the women, but the men wore robes that were ankle-length robes. And so you, you pretty much can't do anything. Just try going for, run a marathon in a pencil skirt, ladies. I mean, it's just not going to work, right? Um, and so what Peter says is that you need to gird up your loins. It was an expression that came from the actual fact of what they were doing. They would, they would take their robes, the corners of their robes, and tuck it under their belt, the, the men would, um, you know, to expose their knees when they were going to do something like plowing a field or building something or fighting or racing or running or anything like that. They would pull their robes up around their thighs to expose their legs so it would be easier to move. And so that just became an expression in the language to gird up your loins meant to get ready for action. We actually have one in English too. We say, roll up your sleeves. Right? And you might say, oh no, I'm wearing a tank top. Well, no, you understand what I mean. Roll up your sleeves. This is going to be tough work today. Because you've seen it. Anytime two guys are, you know, they're in a bar and they're talking and it's getting heated and then they take off their jacket and they roll up your sleeves, you know what's coming next, right? They're going to play darts or something. I don't know. Um, they're going to do something, so they're getting ready for that. So that's all that he's saying here is, okay, the way you have hope and keep your mind on heavenly things because you're saved, so because you're saved, you've got to keep your mind on heavenly things. Now, the way that you do that is step one, it's going to take action. It's going to take effort. It's not going to happen automatically. It's not something simple like, well, just have hope, guys. No, no, no. Roll up your sleeves if you want to have hope. It is going to be a daily thing you need to do. It is going to have to be a discipline of your mind. Now, this is, obviously, he's, he's, he says your mind, preparing your minds for action. So it's not actual labor. It's not like... Um, you know, medieval Catholic doctrine said that in order to please God, one of the things you could do is climb up the Santa Scalia, the, the sacred staircase in Rome, on your knees, saying a prayer on each step. So, yeah, then you would have to, like, really get ready and wear the right clothes. People still do it today. You know, and they, they go there and they, they don't do it in skirts. That's not what it's talking about. It's not actual effort. It's, it's mental effort. The moment the alarm goes off, you're working. You're in spiritual gym, so make sure you're wearing your spiritual gym kit and you don't have anything distracting you, that you don't have anything hindering you. You might want to turn to Philippians chapter 4. There, this is a passage, you know, we preached through Philippians recently, so hopefully this is fresh in your minds, but while you're going there, you know that dogs don't train themselves, Right? You know, whenever somebody comes over to our house and says, oh, your, your dog is so well, uh, so well behaved, you're so lucky. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not how that works. You don't just get a lucky dog that obeys you when you tell it to sit. No, no, no. You have to take that to the trainer for weeks and pay that trainer and do all those exercises just to get it to sit. And that's the 
only thing our dog can do, but it's a handy thing. You have to work at it. And if you take a dog for a walk and you've trained them to walk next to you and you walk past another dog that has not been trained, man, it, there's going to be trouble. And if you don't train your dog and you go for a walk, it's going to walk you to whichever fire hydrant or trash bag it wants to go to. So you need to train that thing to follow you. And Paul says in Philippians, it's the same with your thinking. Because people don't know this. I'm just an anxious person. Yeah, that's like saying, I have a disobedient dog. That's how they come. People come anxious. People come silly and irrational. You have to train your mind. And so in Philippians 4.8, he says, and this is after that passage. Um, how many things are this? That's after the passage where he says, um, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known to God and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So don't be anxious. Replace that anxiety with prayer. That's what brings peace. And then he says this in verse eight. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, here's the command. Think about these things. That's the command. You want to get rid of the anxiety in your life, the hopelessness in your life, the confusion, the distress, the depression? Train your mind. Think on the right things. Things that are right and pure and lovely and commendable. In other words, not the stuff on Twitter, not the stuff on Facebook, not the stuff in sitcoms and rom-coms and all the other coms out there. You need to focus on the things that are excellent and commendable. Now, I, I'm not saying, I'm not making rules for you. We don't make rules that aren't in the Bible, but I'm just saying, think about it. If you struggle with anxiety, my first question is, how much Fox News do you watch? I mean, and you say, well, you, I, we, we're not called to be ostriches and put our heads in the sands, and we're not called to be ignorant and, and be so spiritually minded we have no earthly good. That's a false dichotomy. You can be well informed of current events and not be filled with some random newscaster's opinion. There's ways of doing this. I mean, I, I'm somebody, the more news I watch, the less happy I am. They do that to you on purpose. There's not a channel for good news. Don't think TBN is the good news channel either, by the way. The Christian channels, stay away. But, so what I do is I get, a, I get an email from a group called 1440. 1440. They call it that because that's the year of the printing press, you know. And all they do is they email you every day with the top current events that are going on with no comment. This is what happened. I like that. I don't care what their comment is. I don't care what their opinion is. Now I know what's going on, and I'm not afraid of it. And if there's something scary in there, then I go to the Bible for comment on how to respond to that. And there's other ways that you can do that. Don't fill your mind with the things that make you anxious. Don't fill your mind with the thoughts that make you depressed. Don't let your, that little hamster go around in the wheel over and over. Kill that hamster. I mean, 
We love hamsters, but you know, the, the metaphorical one. And think about these things instead, the things that are commendable and praiseworthy. Take control of those thoughts. Your, your, your brain is like a, a shopping cart with a wheel that wants to bash into the sardine cans all the time, you know? You need to force it and just, you need to work that thing. And it's going to squeak at you the whole time. And if you stop fighting it, it's going to drag you into your old thought patterns. You can go back to First Peter. I'll read from Second Corinthians 10 as well. Paul said that Second Corinthians 4, the weapons of our warfare are not, not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. He means demonic strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The thoughts that we're taking captive are the philosophies and the arguments and the, the lofty opinions that are being pumped into our brain day after day. And we need to take those captive, subdue them, don't let them nest in your mind. You've got to fight it. You've got to treat thoughts that aren't right, that aren't helpful, that aren't good. You have to treat them like rats. I've told you, you get those people that like rats and feed them and name them and keep pets. Those little white rats, you can buy them at a pet store. I always thought they sold them so you could feed them to your python, but apparently people actually buy them. No, no, no. You want to be the kind of guy that puts out traps and poison and walk around with your BB gun if you hear it. You know, that's how you need to be. Once I was clearing out our, our storeroom and I found a pair of Uggs that I had brought Kim from Australia years ago that she hadn't worn in a while and they were in the storeroom. And Uggs, they're like these boots with fluff in them. And as I was, oh, these, I wonder if these, and I looked in and there was a nest that a mouse had made which is kind of cute. I mean, it's a great spot for a nest. So what do you think I did with those Uggs? I gave them to Kim to see what she would do. But anyway, she got rid of them, which was the right move. It was a test, honey. So, and one morning, now compare that, you know, where uh, this, the, this boot is there and it's been taken over and there's this nest. And that image was in my mind one morning just before church when our cat had brought a live rat into the house that in our room that was now running around. And, you know, on Sunday, Satan always comes up with a new ploy on Sunday to mess with me before I preach. But this one was, this was his A game. Because I, there's no way I could say, you know what, we'll just leave it, we'll take care of it when we get back. We're just going to let this rat run around in our house. I'm sure we'll find it. Because you know what I was picturing it? I was picturing it laying, they don't lay, they, they make little rat babies in my boots. And I was like, no, we're going to get this thing. And no animals were harmed in the production of this story, but it was relocated to the neighbor. Um, we, we caught it. So this is what happens in your brain. When thoughts come in and you worry about things and you're, you're, you're fantasizing about things and you desire things that are not commendable or lovely or pure or excellent or praiseworthy, you're always feeding or fighting your thoughts. And your thought life is the most important thing about you. 
And you're always feeding or fighting those thoughts. And if you're not, you're doing it wrong. So be prepared. This is going to be hard. Fill your mind with scripture. Memorize verses. If you're tempted in certain areas, memorize verses that have to do with those areas and recite those verses when you are confronted with that temptation. Fight those thoughts. Spend time with other people who edify you and lift your thoughts to where they should be. Rather than those people that are always complaining about something, always, have you heard this latest conspiracy theory? Let me tell you about it. It's like, no, I don't need that in my life. So be prepared. Here's the second direction to hope. Just very simple. Be sober. Verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So in order to set your hope where it belongs, you need focused, clear thinking. So this isn't really, this isn't really talking about alcohol. Being sober-minded, for example, in 1 Timothy 3, is one of the qualifications of an elder. There's a separate qualification that says he is not to be given too much wine, but there's a qualification that says sober-minded. You want to be able to have an elders' meeting without the elders cracking jokes all the time. I'm the one that has to work on that the hardest in our eldership, but... You know, you, you need to be able to focus and be serious and think seriously about things when, when the time comes. And so that's what this command is. If you're going to have hope in the future because you've been saved, because God has done this for you and secured this and you believe in it, and now you're in a difficult situation and you need to have hope that that is coming, one of the things you have to do is roll up your sleeves and work on it day after day and put your mind on that. And the other thing you have to do is think clearly and carefully without the distractions of this life muddying your you're thinking, like, like trying to do something while you're drunk. There is a reason why airline pilots cannot drink any alcohol whatsoever when they're on duty. Because they need to be attentive. They need to be thinking soberly. They need to be sober-minded. They need to be serious. They need to be focused. We don't want anything cloudy in their vision. And so, do you know that part of pilot training, and we have a pilot among us who's training, I'll run this by him, but I, I was listening to a podcast about it this week. It's fascinating. Part of pilot training is that they teach the pilot to communicate to the passengers that he is calm and sober-minded. That's why the first thing they do is, oh, uh, folks, this is your captain speaking, and uh, we're, uh, you know, they always do the, uh, we're uh, going to go at 30,000 feet today, and then uh, we're going to bank uh, west, and uh, everything is going to be fine. What they're doing is they're, they're giving you a baseline for what a calm person sounds like when you're not even flying, so that later in the flight, when they come on, you know that that's what their calm voice sounds like. And the folks, uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, buckle up a little bit, because... Uh, it's going to be, for the next 20 minutes, a uh, little bit of turbulence. And then the plane, like, you know, it's like, and everyone's screaming, and those little things pop down, and the captain's like, uh, just a few more minutes of this. Uh. And it's fascinating, because they're, they're messing with you. But it's wonderful, because it shows you, hey, to him, this is nothing. I'm calm. I'm just doing the next right thing. And do yourself a favor. Go and hunt down on Google the the audio of Sully Sullenberger landing the plane. 
in the Hudson, where he literally says to the air traffic controller, uh, no, we're not going to make it to LaGuardia. We're going to uh, probably end up in the Hudson. <laughs> not the Hudson Airport, the river with the boats and the bridges in the middle of New York City. And the, the air traffic controller says, uh, say that again. <laughs> say again. We're going to probably end up in the Hudson. I mean, super calm. That's what Peter says you need to be like. You need to be sober-minded. If you're going to be able to keep your hope on heaven, this is how you do it. Stay calm. Don't panic. Don't say things that rile yourself up. Don't let your mind tell you that stuff. Get a baseline for how you feel just after you've heard a sermon on the sovereignty and the power of an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God. And then when you find out you're going to get fired or your investment portfolio is tanking or you have a dread disease diagnosis or there's some in-law that's going to come and stay with you for the week or whatever it is that's going to throw you into it, says he, remember that baseline and be, I need to keep calm and set my mind on the things that are really important. So be sober. I just want to close with a, a, an illustration of what this looks like in real life. In the worst possible situation, I often say to people, just remember the martyrs. I did that today. I said to the band, just remember the martyrs. I had this in my mind. 360 years ago, John Fox compiled the testimony of Christians who had been martyred, the Fox's Book of Martyrs. Well, among these testimonies was the account of two English Protestants, Jerome Russell and the 18-year-old Alexander Kennedy. They were tried for their biblical belief that salvation is by grace through faith alone. Their accusers prevailed, though, and they were sentenced to death by being burned alive. They were sentenced, and Alexander, the 18-year-old, started showing signs of fear just before the execution. And so Jerome, a more mature, older believer, said to him, Brother, fear not. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The pain that we're going to suffer is short and shall be light. But our joy and consolation shall never have an end. Let us therefore strive to enter into our master and savior's joy by the same straight way which he hath taken before us. Death cannot hurt us, for it is already destroyed by him for whose sake we are now going to suffer. Calm, resolute, setting his mind on what's coming, not what's about to happen to him. Fox then ends the account with these words, his own comment. When they arrived at the fatal spot, they both kneeled down and prayed for some time, after which, being fastened to the stake and the kindling lighted, they cheerfully resigned their souls into the hands of him who gave them in full hope of an everlasting reward in the heavenly mansion, unquote. What you learn today will help you in life to keep calm and carry on, to not panic, to do the next right thing. At least I hope it will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this message of hope and scripture and what a blessing it is to know that our dear Savior has suffered more than we will ever be called to suffer.
because he bore the wrath that we deserved. And in our place, he suffered. So that we will never have to face you turning your face away from us. And so I pray for each and every one of us here today, Lord, who do know you, that you would give us hope in heaven this week. And for those who don't know you, Lord, that your spirit would draw them to the cross, that they would make right with the Savior, that they would turn their back on the sin that is keeping them from the cross, and that they would embrace the free forgiveness that comes in Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.